Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever. For the union makes us strong. Hello, I'm Roscoe Mathieu, pronouns he, him, stranger, and welcome to Solidarity Forever, the history of American labor. Episode 5, Regularly Discharged Forever. Welcome back. Last time, I introduced you to the dynamic of political action and direct action. Last time, we reviewed the political action of Commonwealth versus Polis, when capital got trade unionizing declared illegal, and the working men's parties, which fell apart into internal bickering before getting hoovered up into Andrew Jackson's runaway Democratic Party. This time, we're going to take a look at direct action, and not just any direct action, the Lowell Strike of 1834. I have been eagerly waiting for this episode. This is where the big labor history books, There is Power in a Union, Fight Like Hell, A History of America and Ten Strikes, all start. This is, for lack of better terms, the conventional starting point for studying the history of American labor. Suddenly, I'm not hunting down a few scant slips of information based on single sources, but have all four of my main books and their plethora of sources to work from. Yay. Without further ado, let's get into it. Direct action, as we discussed last time, is dealing privately with the bosses, the managers, the landlords. It's avoiding the political and legal process altogether, or at least as much as possible. Direct action despite the best efforts of people with fever dreams of apocalyptic revolution and rebuilding society in their own image, is not synonymous with open violence. Direct action can be as simple as asking two of your colleagues to walk into the meeting with a boss with you, because you know he's going to try to sexually harass you. It runs the whole gamut of creative nonviolent resistance, from sit-down strikes to solidarity t-shirts to strategic sabotage of machinery. Much direct action is legal, some of it is not, and I'm not recommending any illegal tactics to you. Not where the cops can hear. The other question of direct action, the question of violence, is complex, especially given the history of labor's enemies to resort to it, either directly with strike breakers like the Pinkertons, or indirectly by asking the army to come in and restore the peace. As a Quaker, I abhor violence and struggle with a tradition that refuses to engage in any violence whatsoever, with plenty of martyrs to show for it. We'll be exploring violence later in our story, with the Molly Maguires, the Homestead Strike, and the various undeclared wars like the Colorado War. But, as a practical matter, avoid violence in your direct action. Whatever your principles, understand that resorting to violence is starting a battle you cannot win because you are not going to stand up to the U.S. Army, or even the cops, when management can call them in. Maintain discipline, resist incitement to riot and agents provocateurs, and hold the line. It keeps the community on your side. And the importance of the broader community, the stay-at-home spouses, the shopkeepers, the bureaucrats, and the people in the street, is illustrated best at Lowell. To understand Lowell, and its seminal role in American labor, you need to meet three people. Francis Cabot Lowell, Nathan Appleton, and Harriet Hanson Robinson. 
We met Francis Cabot Lowell briefly back in episode three. I only mentioned him in passing there. Now is the time to bring him onto the stage. He is, after all, the first American industrialist, the Steve Jobs of his day. Francis Cabot Lowell was born on April 7, 1775, in Newburyport, Massachusetts. His Republican credentials were unimpeachable. His father had been a member of the Continental Congress and later a judge in the District Court of Massachusetts. As a boy, Francis had a gift for mathematics and graduated from Harvard in 1793. Five years later, he married Hannah Jackson of the Newburyport Jacksons, and they dutifully produced four children. John Jr., Francis Cabot Jr., Edward, and Susanna. In between children, he set up as an importer of British goods. Then Napoleon happened. Napoleon's wars, and more importantly the resulting naval blockades, crippled Lowell's business as American ships were sunk or captured, their crews impressed onto foreign ships against their wills. Traveling to England himself in 1810, Lowell toured the textile mills of Manchester, that dirty and depressing exemplar of everything wrong with the old world's industrialization. According to legend, the mathematics prodigy memorized the operation, construction, and workflow of the textile machines and their human cogs in those dirty factories. Most especially, he memorized the patented power loom, an innovation that replaced ten women at ten looms with one weaver minding all the machines. And well, he did, because on returning to the USA through Halifax, Nova Scotia, his bags and person were searched for drawings or blueprints by British inspectors, anxious of American industrial espionage. Rather like modern American fears of Chinese patent theft. But I've heard the same memorize the blueprint story for, like, five different guys. Maybe they all did, maybe some of them did, maybe only one guy did. Maybe it was Francis Cabot Lowell who did. But it makes a good story. Back in Boston in 1812, Lowell formed the brains of an operation called the Boston Manufacturing Company, better known as the Boston Associates, which included his brother, a mechanic named Paul Moody, and another exciting fourth person we'll get to in a minute. Together in 1814, they opened the first American integrated textile mill at Waltham, Massachusetts, sitting on and powered by the Charles River. From Lowell's mind through Paul Moody's hands, it was a miracle of engineering, especially at the time. For the first time, all that slave cotton picked in the South was spun, woven, dyed, cut, and shipped in one gigantic building, every machine and place together, powered by water and operated by wage workers fresh from their farms. In economics class, this is called vertical integration, and it plays a key role in our story when John Rockefeller pushes it to its logical limit with Standard Oil, and a key role in the company you work at today. The Northern Factory made the slave plantation a permanent fixture of the South almost as much as Eli Whitney's stolen cotton gin. The white mill girls washed black blood out of the raw cotton before spinning it into bolts for sale to the British, who had, of course, banned slavery. Francis Cabot Lowell died in 1817, but make no mistake, he casts a long, long shadow. Lowell, more than Hamilton, more than Tench Cox, had seen the future. He saw the vast factories, the idyllic and idealistic suburbs full of wage workers, the degradation of both, 
the way this social order would spread across America and conquer the Midwestern farmer, the Southern planter, and the Western cattleman. His vision, though he did not live to see it, formed America. As Leonard Cohen warned us, he had seen the future, and it was murder. With Cabot's death, we come to the second of our key figures, Nathan Appleton. The exciting fourth member of the Boston Associates, Appleton was born in 1779, part of that first generation of Americans to grow up with the New Republic. He was from an old Boston family, complete with old-school Puritanism, and dropped out of Dartmouth to go into business when he was 23. After working with his brother for a few years, Appleton hooked up with another Boston Brahmin just back from England with a head full of ideas, and also a head full of looms. By the time of Lowell's death back in 1817, the Boston Associates had three small, very successful mills running on various tributaries in Massachusetts, and Appleton had the first of five terms in the Massachusetts General Court, the beginnings of a modest political career to add power to his money. Appleton, as ambitious in worldly matters as he was strict in spiritual ones, set his sights on something greater. In 1821, Appleton and the Boston Associates purchased the water power rights to Pawtucket Falls, also known as the Merrimack Falls for the river they form a part of, and moved into the tiny hamlet of East Chelmsford, population 200. In his own words in the pamphlet Introduction to the Power Loom and the Origin of Lowell, Appleton writes, We perambulated the grounds and scanned the capabilities of the place, and the remark was made that some of us might live to see the place contain 20,000 inhabitants. At the time, there were, I think, less than a dozen houses on what now constitutes the city of Lowell, or rather, the thickly settled parts of it. The Merrimack Valley was broad, the Pawtucket Falls powerful, the perfect place to build a showcase of American industry and American muscle and American ideals, a powerhouse of the new American factory system. The Boston Associates would take the Merrimack Valley and reshape it in their own image, in the image of Francis Cabot Lowell. They raised nine huge mills with Irish immigrant labor imported from Boston, under the autocratic command of an engineer whose anglophilia would make H.P. Lovecraft blush. He required every laborer of every creed to attend the Episcopalian church he built and maintained there with the money he garnished from their wages. I'm sure the Catholics were thrilled. They were shipped back to Boston, and the industrial workforce came in, in ones and twos, in trickles, in floods. In 1820, East Chelmsford had 200 residents. By 1836, there were 18,000 people in the Merrimack Valley, and 10,000 of them worked in the textile mills. It was, in Philip Dre's words, unprecedented, well on its way to becoming the largest manufacturing center in the United States. Appleton himself continues in The Origin of Lowell that the first wheel of the Merrimack Company was set in motion on the 1st of September, 1823. In 1825, $500 were appropriated for a library. Three additional mills were built. In 1829, one mill was burnt down. In 1825, Mr. Dutton going to Europe, Nathan Appleton was appointed president. The first dividend of $100 per share was made in 1825. They have been regularly continued, with few exceptions, averaging something over 12% per annum to the present time. 
12% returns is something most stock market investors today salivate over. Cloth was Appleton's business, and business was very, very good. But Appleton was a Puritan of the old school, and Lowell had been horrified by Manchester. God forbid that there ever may arise a counterpart of Manchester in the New World, as we heard back in Episode 3. Alexander Hamilton had suggested that, in place of single young men who could get themselves into trouble, or perhaps start associating in trade guilds and mechanics unions, women and girls, whose experience with textiles stretched back millennia, could come to the mills to earn a salary of their own. He wrote, The husbandman experiences a new source of profit and support from the increased industry of his wife and daughters. In general, women and children are rendered more useful, and the latter more early useful, by manufacturing establishments than they would otherwise be. Of those 18,000 streaming in, the 10,000 in the mill, 95% were native-born, mostly New England Yankees, and fully three-quarters of them were female, single, and between the ages of 15 and 30. The women and girls who manned the looms earned between $2.25 and $4 a week, with the men who oversaw them earning $4 to $12 a week. Cash money, mind, with the full faith and credit of the United States government, not company script for the company's store, like so many other places. And you have to understand, as terrible as the pay was after all the deductions the employers levied on them for various reasons, coming to two cents an hour in some cases, women streamed in by the hundreds from all over New England because it still beat farm labor. It's always worth bearing in mind, when we read about Manchester, or London, or Lowell, that as terrible as Dickens ever described them, as awful as the pay was and as horrifying the conditions were, staying home on the farm was always worse. Which is why they came, in the hundreds, the thousands, the tens of thousands, to be brutalized in those early factories and slums for starvation wages. One woman working in the mill wrote to her sister back on the farm, since I have wrote you, another payday has come around. I earned $14 and a half, nine and a half dollars beside my board. The folks think I get along just first rate, they say. I like it well as ever, and Sarah, don't I feel independent of everyone. The thought that I am living on no one is a happy one indeed to me. And the creation of a new American industry didn't stop at recruitment. Nathan Appleton was the architect of, in Dre's words, the paternalistic concern and humane treatment of his feminine workforce, both out of religious conviction and the good business sense that a clean, happy worker was a busy worker. Appleton's Puritan streak demanded exemplary white women, the very flower of virtuous American whiteness. They spent their spending money at the numerous dry goods stores and dress shops that sprung up in the shadows of the mills, remaking themselves from country cousins into urbane debutantes, something the, mostly male, visitors all commented on. They changed their names, trading out hick names like Florilla and Aseneth to more respectable Janes and Susans. This is a long quote, a very long quote, from the origin of Lowell, but it's Appleton's own thoughts on the city, and ultimately the society, that he and the Boston associates were building. It reads, The introduction of the cotton manufacture in this country, on a large scale, was a new idea. 
what would be its effect on the character of our population was a matter of deep interest. The operatives in the manufacturing cities of Europe were notoriously of the lowest character for intelligence and morals. The question, therefore, arose, and was deeply considered, whether this degradation was the result of the peculiar occupation or of other and distinct causes. We could not perceive why this peculiar description of labor should vary in its effects upon character from all other occupation. There was little demand for female labor, as household manufacture was superseded by the improvements in machinery. Here was in New England a fund of labor, well-educated and virtuous. It was not perceived how a profitable employment has any tendency to deteriorate the character. The most efficient guards were adapted in establishing boarding houses, at the cost of the company, under the charge of respectable women, with every provision for religious worship. Under these circumstances, the daughters of respectable farmers are readily induced to come into these mills for a temporary period. The contrast in the character of our manufacturing population, compared with that of Europe, has been the admiration of the most intelligent strangers who have visited us. The effect has been to more than double the wages of that description of labor from what they were before the introduction of this manufacture. Uh, that again was Nathan Appleton in The Origin of Lowell. And then he starts carping about free trade, like today's capitalists. Plus ça change. But this is what Appleton thought and told people he was building, and what the workers themselves would come to think of themselves as, and what he presented to visitors. And oh boy, did they have visitors. He wasn't lying there. Basil Hall, a British naval officer, described a halcyon dawn after being awoken by the factory bells. The whole space between the factories and the village speckled over with girls, nicely dressed and glittering with bright shawls and showy-colored gowns and gay bonnets, all streaming along to their business, with an air of lightness and an elasticity of step, implying an obvious desire to get to their work. Davy Crockett, yes, that one, at the other end of the day from Basil Hall, said, The dinner bells were ringing and the folks pouring out of the house like bees out of gum. I looked at them as they passed, all well-dressed, lively and genteel in their appearance. Indeed, the girls looked as if they were coming from a quilting frolic. I went in among the young girls and talked with many of them. Not one expressed herself as tired of her employment or oppressed with work. All talked well and looked healthy. Which brings us to the last figure in our story. Let me introduce you to Harriet Hanson Robinson. In 1834, she is nine years old. Her father died when she was five. She has a few cherished memories of him. Mostly, she remembers hunger, as her widowed mother tried to keep food on the table for Harriet and her three surviving siblings. For millennia, families in such straits often split up, the children wandering away in search of food or a better life as soon as their legs could carry them, or dying at home in their mother's arms. But Harriet Brown Hansen was determined to keep her family together. When a neighbor offered to adopt young Harriet, her mother replied, No, while I have one meal of victuals a day, I will not part with my children. Life on the farm was always worse. When Harriet's aunt, who worked in the Lowell Mills, invited her sister and her family to join her, they came, like so many others. The elder Harriet was too old for the Lowell hiring managers, 
but little Harriet found work as a doffer, paid $2 a week, minus expenses, to replace empty bobbins on the machines three times her size with full ones. This only took a quarter of every hour, and in the meantime, the children, denied school by their work schedules, were allowed to play, or read, or go home for lunch. Harriet chose to read, and even write, and her account of her life, Loom and Spindle, or Life Among the Mill Girls, is our primary source for everything that's about to happen, and the life of the mill girls as they elevated the Boston Associates into power and riches, and American industry into existence. The 550 boarding houses that kept all those young women, at $1.25 a week, helpfully already deducted from her pay, obeyed Appleton's injunctions to the letter, and followed strict standards policing the ladies' behavior, keeping curfews, punishing, swearing, and Sabbath-breaking, and chaperoning the rare gentleman visitor. The crowded boarding houses slept three mill workers to every bed, but, because the girls could choose their own boarding house when they came, many of them boasted of lending libraries, spacious parlors, and, as the English novelist Anthony Trollope noted with astonishment, hot meat! At least among the boarding houses, capitalism did in fact work, after a fashion. The ladies themselves, young Harriet Hansen included, were complicit in the strict Puritan atmosphere, anxious about their reputations as young women in a growing city, away from home and village for the first time. After all, they still wanted to land a man at the end of their workday. They were genuinely proud of getting honest pay for honest work, and when an errant bishop suggested that factory work somehow undermined their virtue, sexual or otherwise, they replied in their own words that the factory life on the Merrimack had a moral atmosphere as clear and bracing as that of the mountains from whose breezy slopes we come. Their reputation was a boon to the Boston associates. Almost as much as the bolts of cotton cloth daily shipped down the river, the Lowell girl was a product to be sold to a growing nation and a startled world. The image of the tidy young woman, smiling and industrious at her loom, the very platonic ideal of the Lowell girl, adorned cotton labels, snuff boxes, matches, and dry goods, lending her sterling reputation to the companies that wanted to profit from her. Much as we Quakers had our reputation borrowed by a Presbyterian grocer to sell oats. She became the talk of the nation, popping up in Fourth of July speeches and travelers' accounts. I mentioned Basil Hall and Davy Crockett, but other celebrities of the day, like Alexis de Tocqueville and Charles Dickens, also came to see what Appleton dubbed the Lowell Miracle. Charles Dickens, the English writer who had spent his childhood in the factories and slums, the voice of the working people, came to Lowell to great fanfare. In his American Notes, he heaped scorn on the peculiar institution of slavery, but had nothing but praise for Lowell. The pianos in the parlors, the libraries in the boarding houses, the literary aspirations of the mill girls themselves. The man who had spent his life condemning the industry of the old world had passed judgment on the industry of the new, and he found it good. But the biggest draw of all in 1833 was the President of the United States himself, Andrew Jackson. In Milltown on the Merrimack, Lewis Taylor Merrill recounts, the exhilarating experience of being made the target of thousands of dazzling smiles and arch glances shot out from under the green fringe parasols moved the chivalrous old hero 
almost as much as the barrage of British bullets that shrilled past his head at the Battle of New Orleans. By the Eternal, Old Hickory was heard to exclaim after his perambulations around the town. They are very pretty women. This was the future that Lowell envisioned. This was the city that Appleton built. This was the factory where Harriet Hanson Robinson grew up. As the industrial settlement grew and East Chelmsford and the surrounding communities swallowed up, the new city was named Lowell with Appleton as one of the three city fathers, in honor of the man whose vision he carried out. Given as he was also the Massachusetts representative in Congress at the time, I have no idea how he found the time. But all was not well in the city of Lowell. The Lowell girl, seen on the cotton bolts and matchboxes, hid a growing tension in the air behind her gleaming smile and tidy green parasol. The Lowell Offering the ladies' literary journal that George Sand praised in Paris, and Charles Dickens called the equal of any English magazine, offers an insight into the change in the weather. An early article between its tidy pages, and recorded for posterity by Harriet Hanson Robinson, boasts, Other nations can look upon the relics of a glory come and gone, upon their magnificent ruins. We have other and better things. Let us look upon our lyceums, lecture halls, our common schools, the periodical of our laboring females, upon all that is indigenous to our republic, and say, with the spirit of the Roman Cornelia, these are our jewels. But a later article by a mysterious Ellen reads, I object to the constant hurry of everything. We cannot have time to eat, drink, or sleep. We have only 30 minutes, or at most three quarters of an hour, allowed us to go from our work partake of our food, and return to the noisy clatter of the machinery. Up before day, at the clang of the bell, and out of the mill, at the clang of the bell, into the mill, and at work, in obedience to that ding-dong of a bell, just as though we were living machines. I will give my notice tomorrow. Go, I will. I won't stay here and be a white slave. Let me take a moment to talk about this rhetorical point. Like the American revolutionaries, the French the Russians, the Italians, in fact, like all white revolutionaries since eh, 1750, the labor movement often compared themselves to black chattel slavery. Sometimes this was perilously close to the truth, often nothing but rhetorical hot air. Hell, labor's great battle cry, workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains, invokes this very slave imagery. But there was always a line to be drawn. Even the most downtrodden white laborer had a few rights, even if he or she couldn't use them. The enslaved black person had none. The labor movement, like all revolutionary movements down to the present day, lived under a specter of a slavery that was just around the corner, the threat that they would be treated as black people were treated, or as they themselves treated black people. The labor movement is not immune to this subtle racism, but neither is it exceptional for it. Ellen's facts, though, were accurate, whatever her rhetoric. They worked farm hours, dawn till dusk, 11 hours a day in December, up to 14 hours a day in July, with 30 minutes out for lunch. Injuries were common, and many girls left the mills minus a few fingers, or minus a hand, or coughing up bloody cotton lint from their lungs for the rest of their shortened lives, or, sometimes, feet first in a pinewood box.
Diseases like grip and typhoid broke out regularly, especially the grip, which was nicknamed mill fever. The machines were also incredibly loud, and I have to imagine more than a few girls, when they got married and left the factories forever, couldn't hear their husband's I do over the tinnitus. But somehow or other, no medical inquiry was ever conducted, no proof that the mills were unhealthy, and besides, the visitors all commented on how sturdy and healthy the young women looked. And things were getting worse. Appleton never stopped innovating, and some of his innovations were the stretch-out, the speed-up, and the premium system. The stretch-out is telling a working girl that instead of 8 or 10 machines, she's now minding 12 for the same pay, and instead of standing upright for 14 hours, she's now running off her feet between them. The speed-up was exactly that. The factory foreman, and they were men, speeding up the machine so each one would need to be serviced sooner. The premium system was awarding the male supervisors with cash awards for producing the most, which led to tyrannical floor bosses running roughshod over the mill girls in order to beat the floor boss in the next factory over and get his big cash prize. They have different names, but all of these still exist. All of Appleton's innovations are standard practice at your company. They certainly were at the Beast. A friend of Ellen's convinced her to stay, reminding her in print of the drudgery, bad smells, and noise of the farm, because farm life is always worse, but a worker named Josephine Baker, no, not that one, described many occurrences that send the warm blood mentaling to the cheek when they must be born in silence, and many harsh words and acts that are not called for. The mill girls did not take this lying down. Even in the halcyon days of the Lowell Miracle, women took individual stands and individual acts of direct action, getting fired for misconduct, imprudence to overseer, circulating false stories, levity, mutiny, being hysterical and the overseer was afraid she would get caught in the gearing, or, of course, complaining about their pay. The note on one such firing titles this episode, Regularly discharged forever. And forever meant forever. There was no law against employers colluding to hold down wages, only laws against workers colluding to raise them. And employers did, and they shared blacklists. A girl fired from one factory could never find work in any other factory in Lowell. Again, this was all perfectly legal. But it was limited to individual acts and individual cases because the mill girls, in modern terminology, had buy-in on the whole Lowell project. They felt like it was theirs to own, good and bad, to enjoy the opportunities the new capitalism had to offer and to endure the hardships as best they could. And if a girl could not endure those hardships, well, it was her own fault. Besides, they weren't here forever. This was, after all, a way to support the family at home and have a few dollars for herself until her husband comes along. Almost anything can be endured if you tell yourself it's temporary. The Lowell Mill girls did not see themselves as a permanent working class, in any sense of the phrase. They were not permanent, but temporary. They were not a class, but individuals. About the only thing they did was work. Finally, the very terms and phrases used discouraged organizing. Any discontent at the mill system was labeled New Jersey feelings after the abortive strike in the mills of Patterson, New Jersey in 1827. 
A good Lowell girl wouldn't think or feel that way. That was something alien, imported from afar, to infect our good, precious, white working girls. Astute listeners have already noticed that almost all of this, the temporary nature, the rugged individualism, the language of wages and of character and of wholesomeness, come direct from Appleton's The Origin of Lowell. The first act of direct action is inside your own head, questioning those assumptions like, we're all a family here, or unions come from the outside, or I'm only here for a while, it doesn't matter, or that most American of management lies, we're all free individuals here, we don't need collective bargaining or organized labor. You might decide that they're true, but ask yourself if they are. That is the first and most important direct action you can take. Asking yourself if the things your boss tells you, the things your colleagues tell you, are really true or not. So what made the 1834 strike, that seminal strike in America, so important? Why is it our founding myth, our shot heard round the world, or our bestiae? Because in 1834, for the first time, the girls of Lowell worked together. Records of the organization are scarce, which isn't unusual. In their early days, unions are secretive. There's a reason I don't name the beast, and doubly so with the shadow of Pullis hanging over them. But we do our best. Running low on available New England farm girls, and looking to dilute the grumbling labor pool, I mean, just read this week's Lowell offering, with some fresh immigrant blood, the Boston Associates imported immigrants from England, Scotland, Wales, Canada, and Ireland. But their attempt to dampen the labor pool with immigrant workers backfired. Hard. These immigrants, few in number compared to their Yankee sisters, brought with them news of Manchester's trade union organizing, and the works of David Ricardo started to appear in the parlors and lending libraries of Lowell's boarding houses. In addition to his law of rent, Ricardo was gaining traction in economics for his theory that labor was the main contributor to value. That, in other words, it was the girls who spun and dyed the cloth that made it worth so much more than the bales of raw blood-stained cotton that got shipped in by the ton. This theoretical foundation fused with the English girls' second-hand experience of their brothers and fathers organizing on the ground, and with the all-American idea, articulated by the working man's parties still fresh in memory, that the producers the mill girls, were the real wealth of America, and their work was being siphoned off by parasitical bosses, bankers, and landlords. After all, hadn't Mr. Ricardo himself said that all value was split between profits and wages? He did. Where were their wages? Then, in February 1834, the boss's paper, the Lowell Journal, warned, Many of the directors and stockholders of the factories in this town are upon the point of deciding to stop the mills. The effect upon thousands of our people would be indescribable. Laborers of every class and artisans of every trade must go, they know not whither, to seek in vain for subsistence, and all the inhabitants who depend upon them for support will be left destitute. Textile prices were down, the market was sluggish, it's the economy stupid, etc., 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 Harriet Hansen, all of nine years old, might lose her job. And despite her mother's best efforts, the loss of Harriet's paycheck could drive the little family to dissolve at last. 
To avoid this unhappy fate, Nathan Appleton, then in Boston sitting in the general court, demanded a 25% pay cut to all the working girls and the foremen and supervisors of the factories. No word on whether he asked the rest of the Boston associates to take a pay cut too, but we sure can guess. Cooler heads on the ground prevailed, and the pay cut was reduced to 15% across the board, starting March 1st. Instead of losing her paycheck, little Harriet would just be earning $1.70 a week instead of $2, and $1.25 still detected for room and board, of course, leaving her an entire 45 cents for a week's work, 12 hours a day, six days at a stretch, to support her family. We have a broadsheet, which I've posted in the show notes, from that same February of 1834, reading in part, We are circulating this paper, wishing to obtain the names of all those who imbibe of the spirit of our noble ancestors, who preferred privation to bondage, to procure independence for their children. Resolved, that we will not go back to the mills to work unless our wages are continued so as they have been. Resolved, that none of us will go back unless they will receive us all as one. Resolved, that if any have not enough money enough to carry them home, that they shall be supplied. They weren't even asking for a pay raise. They were asking not to have their pay cut. And they had to fight for it, for something that basic, something most of us now take for granted. This is what we've won. Not long after the broadsheet circulated, a supervisor named William Austin heard, probably from some stooge or scab from the factory floor, that the women in the spinning room were holding a meeting. Going himself to investigate, he was challenged by a woman he dubbed a dictatress, who was in the middle of a speech. The dictatress struck him as unruly and intractable, in Dre's words. He offered her an honorable discharge from the mill. Not the blacklist, but out of his hair for good. The dictatress refused, and the women went back to work. For a while. Later that day, he saw her again preaching. She continually had a crowd around her, and he fired her, presumably dishonorably. But that still didn't get rid of the dictatress, who took up a spot outside, waving her calash, that is to say, her hat, in the air as a signal to the others, who were watching from the windows when 800 immediately struck, and, exiting the building, assembled around her. The turnout had begun. Those 800 women and girls marched through the streets of Lowell, joined by other women from the other mills, arriving at Lowell Common where, according to Thomas Dublin and Women at Work, one of the leaders mounted a pump and made a flaming Mary Wollstonecraft speech on the rights of women and the inequalities of the moneyed aristocracy, which produced a powerful effect on her auditors, as no one could recall a woman ever giving a public speech before in Lowell. The strikers determined to have their own way if they died for it. To top it all off, they then marched to the two local banks and withdrew all their savings. The banks, crippled by the run, shut down for the duration of the strike, further exerting the women's economic control of the city. This wasn't a spontaneous demonstration. This had clearly been planned for maximum impact on the bosses and maximum impact on the rest of the Merrimack Valley. The men, of course, were horrified. They saw this as a betrayal of the white feminine ideal they had worked so hard to cultivate. A betrayal of the matchbox Lowell girl herself. William Austin wrote to his own bosses in Boston 
that notwithstanding the friendly and disinterested advice which has been on all proper occasions communicated to the girls of the Lowell Mills, a spirit of evil omen has prevailed and overcome the judgment and discretion of too many. The Boston associates fought fire with fire and words with words. The papers were awash in denunciations of those alien influences on good American workers, reminding the girls to mind their fathers, who protect and employ them in place of their own parents back on the farm, threatening the blacklist to those who would not bend the knee. Only a week after the strike had started, it was over. The bank run had been a critical mistake, and it cost them the support of the broader community. The shopkeepers, clerks, and people in the street saw the thousand-odd striking women as troublemakers, infected with foreign ideas, ungrateful for the opportunities that the Boston Associates afforded them. After all, every housewife and shopkeeper was about to feel the pinch, just as much as the mill girls, and you didn't see them taking to the streets or shutting the banks down so honest folk can do their daily business. Any and all trouble in the town was laid squarely at the feet of the dictatress and her sisters-in-arms, and by March 1st, most of the girls, including little Harriet Hanson Robinson, were sheepishly back at work drawing their reduced pay, or, like the dictatress, run out of town on a rail. Regularly discharged forever. But they hadn't lost everything. The same sentiments, the same ideas, the same Ricardo volumes were still floating around Lowell Common and in hushed whispers in the spinning rooms. There was a change, as it were, in the weather. The next year, in 1835, in his exhaustive Democracy in America, Alexis de Tocqueville would write of the growing capitalist class, The friends of democracy should keep their eyes anxiously in this direction, for if ever a permanent inequality of conditions and aristocracy again penetrate into the world, it may be predicted that this is the gate by which it will enter. This in the same volume in which he praises the Lowell Mills and the Lowell Mill Girl. In 1837, looking back, local luminary Charles Hagner would write of combinations of the employees and lamenting strikes and turnouts that have so frequently occurred in this village. All have a direct tendency, he continued, to array one portion of the community against the other, the poor against the rich and the rich against the poor. A complete separation seems to have taken place between masters and men. Each party looks upon the other as an enemy. There was a separation now between the men of the Boston Associates and the Mill Girls. The Lowell Project was not one thing that they owned together. That was now clear. There were two camps, and the women did not own every 14-hour day, every pay cut, every hacking cough, every lost limb as just part of the deal. They were individuals, certainly. They were Americans, after all. But they were all stuck in the same camp, and it was not the camp the people selling cotton and Lowell Mill Girl matches were in. In Marx's terms, they developed class consciousness. This is the part where more radical socialists explain that, no, actually, this means 1834 was a huge win. It isn't. They lost. And if you don't like that labor history, go make some of your own. But it does mean they didn't lose completely. They made national headlines and tarnished the matchbook image their employers tried to foist on them and on the world. 
workers across the country followed Lowell in the papers that heady last week of February. They learned lessons in organizing, in planning, and in communicating, and the importance of the community who could make or break them. The bosses, by contrast, learned nothing. They'd stamped out the fire, but left the embers to burn. And 1835 would breathe new life and inspiration into the embers that still smoldered in Lowell. Not just the National Trades Union, which would not survive the decade, but strike. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever. Solidarity forever, for the Union makes us strong. In Patterson and Maniunk, and in Philadelphia, a general strike. Not just a skilled general strike, mind you. A general strike where the unskilled workers struck, too. Solidarity forever. Solidarity forever, solidarity forever, for the union makes us strong.